Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Every town has that one family. That family who seems to be above the law. They can get away with anything. You know the one I'm talking about. Their wealth, privilege, and power enable them to play by their own set of rules. For residents of Hampton, South Carolina, in their town, that family was the Murdaws. The Murdaws are a dynasty in the Low Country. For nearly 100 years, the Murdaugh family has kept a stronghold on the legal system in the southwest corner of South Carolina. Election after election, a Murdaugh filled the seat of the 14th Circuit Solicitor with the full power of the prosecutor's office. We can all imagine the connections and privilege that comes along with that. But now, the Murdaughs find themselves in a vastly different position. They're smack dab in the middle of a twisted southern double murder mystery. At the center of it all is Alex Murdaugh, the disgraced South Carolina attorney who is currently on trial in Walterboro for the murders of his wife Maggie and his 22-year-old son Paul. This trial has been a whirlwind, shocking testimony, a bomb threat to the courthouse, extremely emotional moments, and the entire world is watching. The influence of the Murdaugh family extends to the very courtroom where Alex Murdaugh is being tried. So much so that Judge Clifton Newman ordered the portrait of Alex's grandfather be removed from the room for the duration of the trial. This signifying a possible end to the family's dynasty. The Murdaughs have numerous mysterious deaths in their orbit, but this trial has been focused on what really happened the night of June 7, 2021. The night Maggie and Paul were found shot to death at the Murdaugh's family hunting lodge, referred to as Moselle. The bodies were discovered by Alex at the dog kennels on the other end of their property. And from the beginning, Alex's account of that evening didn't quite add up. He claimed the night of the murders, they all ate dinner together. Then Paul and Maggie left for the kennels as he stayed at the house and took a nap on the couch. He said he later woke up, drove to visit his mom, and when he returned around 10 p.m. later that evening, he discovered the bodies. But investigators didn't really buy it. There were too many holes in his story. So fast forward to now, we are weeks into the double murder trial. And with the help of countless witnesses, many questions are being answered about the night Maggie and Paul were murdered and the events that led up to the shootings. But one question remains. Will the jury find Alex Murdaugh guilty? Will he be convicted in the murders of his wife and son? How will the Twisted Murdaugh saga end? Welcome back to Avery After Dark. As always, I'm your host, Avery Ross. Whew, we've got a big episode today. I hope you're ready. And hey, before we start, if you're enjoying Avery After Dark, leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in growing the show so I can continue creating more and more for you. 
And if you want all these episodes early and ad-free, as well as photos and videos that go along with the stories, join the Patreon. I've linked that in the show notes, just $3 a month. That's it. Thank you to all my amazing Patreon members. So longtime listeners will remember, I covered the Murdoch case a few months back here on the podcast. But that was long before the trial, and since then, we have about a million and one new revelations, so we're jumping right back into it. This is the trial of Alex Murdaugh and the fall of the Murdaugh dynasty. Before we jump into the trial, let's do a brief little rundown of the events that led to it. The Murdaughs have held legal reign over the Low Country for nearly a hundred years. Alex's great-grandfather and grandfather were both elected top prosecutors in the region. The Murdaughs were very well-connected and very powerful. This was a family who had money, control, and status but everything changed on the evening of June 7th, 2021. At 10.07 p.m., Hampton County Police Dispatch received a shocking phone call from Alex Murdaugh himself. Take a listen. <laughs> Hampton County 911, with your emergency? This is Alex Murdoch at 4147 Moselle Road. I need the police to pass us immediately. My wife and child got shot badly. Okay, you said 4147 Moselle Road in Allison? Sir? You said 4147 Moselle Alex's youngest son, Paul Murdaugh, 22, and his wife, Maggie Murdaugh, 52, were found shot to death at their hunting property, Moselle, in Islandton, South Carolina. This double murder sent shockwaves through the low country and the nation, and it completely shattered the image of the well-to-do and in-control Murdaughs. Upon arriving to the grisly crime scene, investigators found the bodies of Paul and Maggie, both of them shot multiple times. This looked to be a complete ambush. And almost immediately, a frantic Alex Murdaugh begins pointing the finger. He tells authorities that he knew what this was. This had to do with the boat wreck. The boat wreck that he is referring to is the 2019 boat crash that resulted in the death of 19-year-old Mallory Beach. It was the Murdaugh's boat and Paul was allegedly driving that evening, but he never even spent a night in jail. 
the Beach family lost their teenage daughter that night, a tragedy. And as you may guess, many in Hampton turned on the Murdaws for their lack of accountability. A witness in town stated that a few days after the wreck, he saw the Murdaws in town laughing, enjoying a meal at a restaurant. It looked to the town that once again, this family could do whatever they wanted. While Mallory's family was out searching for their daughter's body in the murky waters, the Murdaws remained unscathed. This boat wreck didn't sit well with locals, and in the years since, Paul Murdaugh had received threats regarding the crash. So at the double murder scene on June 7th, Alex tells police this has to do with the boat wreck. He claimed he knew it. Someone came and killed Paul and Maggie as revenge, and the investigation began. Agents interviewed Alex numerous times, and as the days and weeks rolled on, investigators continued trying to piece together what really happened at Moselle that night. Authorities were shocked when they realized that the shooter or shooters used two different weapons that night. Paul was killed with a shotgun and Maggie a rifle. And all the while, Alex continues to maintain his alibi. The night of the murders, he had dinner with Maggie and Paul. Then the two of them went down to the kennels as he fell asleep on the couch at the house. He woke up, left Moselle to visit his mom, then arrived back home around 10 p.m. and discovered their bodies. In the media, many thought the double murder was the work of a vigilante, retaliating for the boat crash. After all, Paul had recently been hassled while he was out on the town with friends. In years back, someone did try to light the Murdaugh's house on fire, so they were no stranger to attacks. But closer to home, investigators said that Alex was a suspect from day one. In a murder, they have to eliminate those closest to the victims first, but they couldn't eliminate Alex. His alibi was shaky at best. And also, police couldn't identify anyone else as a suspect in the killings. Investigators also believed that the weapons used to kill Paul and Maggie were Murdaugh family guns. And these guns have never been found. Most times when there's a crime scene like this without robbery as a motive, statistically, it's almost always personal, someone you know. So for investigators, things weren't adding up and police were looking much closer to home. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. As the summer of 2021 progressed, investigators were collecting evidence, conducting interviews with anyone and everyone associated with the Murdaugh family. Police really began to close in on Alex in the late summer, and they brought him in for questioning. Special Agent David Owen, who was on the case from the jump, considered Alex the only known suspect. In an interrogation, he grilled Alex about his inconsistent timeline from the night of the murders. This interrogation lasted for nearly two hours, and Special Agent Owen comes out and questions Alex directly if he was involved. Let's take a listen. Thank you, man. I just saw a few more questions. Okay. Did you kill Maggie? No. 
Did I kill my wife? Yes, sir. No, David. You know who did? No, I do not know who did. Did you kill Paul? No, I did not kill Paul. Do you know who did? No, sir, I do not know who did. Do you think I killed Maggie? I have to go where the evidence and the fact I understand that. And you think I killed Paul? I have to go where the evidence and the facts take me, and I don't have anything that points to anybody else at this time. So does that mean that I am a suspect? You were still in, like I told Corey earlier, you were still in this. Not too long after this, things got even more bizarre when on September 4th, 2021, police received another frantic 911 call from who? Alex Murdaugh. He told the 911 operator that someone had shot him. He said he pulled over with a flat tire when a very nice male pulled over and pretended to help him. Alex said that when he turned his back, the unidentified man shot him in the head and then drove off. Alex described the shooter as a white male in his 30s or 40s with close cropped hair. He drove a newer model dark blue Chevy pickup truck with sport tires. Alex was so detailed with his description of the shooter, he worked with a police sketch artist to formulate a drawing of this individual. Unknowingly for Alex, officials did a full investigation of the roadside shooting and found a small little hole in Alex's flat tire. It didn't look like he had run something over. It looked like someone had popped a hole in the tire with a pocket knife. And police didn't have to look very far. Across the street from the scene, they located a pocket knife. It was tested and the DNA on the knife came back with two hits. One Alex Murdaugh and one Curtis Edward Smith. Curtis Edward Smith, 61, AKA Cousin Eddie, was found to be Alex's alleged drug dealer. Police confirmed this because at the hospital, still recovering from his superficial head wound from the shooting, Alex was trying to bribe nurses to allow him to use their phones to call Curtis Smith. Shortly after this, in a September 13, 2021 phone interview with police, Alex Murdaugh came clean. While recovering at a rehab in Atlanta, Murdaugh told police that that day he called Curtis Smith and asked him to quote, shoot him a request he said Smith was a little surprised about, but eventually agreed to. Alex said that he had previously represented Curtis Smith and knew him for years. Murdaugh told investigators in the audio that he would also pay him, quote, several times a week for pills, sometimes in cash, but often with checks, end quote. Murdaugh said that he then met up with Curtis, gave him a 38 revolver before the two drove out to Old Sakahatchee Road, Alex said that he then got out of his own car, cut a hole in his tire with a knife before throwing it to the other side of the road. And then Alex said Curtis shot him, but he missed and hit him in the very back of the head. Curtis then fled with the gun and Alex called 911. Wow. Alex said that his intent was to die on that back road so that his only surviving son, Buster, could collect his $10 million life insurance. Alex went on to say, quote, I knew I was about to lose everything, and I figured he was better off that way than dealing with me." End quote. This is a very important event. It's all a part of the trial, because investigators learned that one day before the botched roadside shooting, Alec was confronted by his law firm, accusing him of financial crimes, stealing from his clients and the law firm. 
Alex was officially asked to resign. And from this point on, it was a complete downfall for Alex. He was charged with nearly 100 criminal charges, financial crimes, countless lawsuits. It's estimated that Alex Murdoch stole nearly $8.5 million in wrongful death and wreck settlements from more than a dozen clients over the years. And as this came to light, past suspicious deaths connected to the family were reopened as well, like the cases of Stephen Smith and Gloria Satterfield. And on July 14, 2022, the day finally came. Alex Murdaugh was officially indicted for the double murder charges and the deaths of Maggie Murdaugh and Paul Murdaugh, as well as weapons charges. He pled not guilty. Police said they now have a cell phone video they believe places Alex at the scene of the crime. This video is now known as the Kennel Snapchat video. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. So now Alex Murdaugh is the one on trial. The once prominent attorney has switched chairs and is now sitting in the defendant's spot, fighting for his life, a sight that not many thought they would ever witness. For decades, usually the Murdaughs were in the power seat, defending clients, getting big payouts, but not now. There have been many oh wow moments in the trial so far, and we're gonna cover them all. The trial has shed light on a lot of questions we had, so let's break it down. One of the biggest hurdles in this case was to prove motive. And to do that, Prosecutor Creighton Waters and the state were aiming to get evidence of Alex's financial crimes admissible in court. Because the state believes to understand how or why Alex Murdoch could do such a thing, murder his wife and son in cold blood, you have to understand what was going on behind the scenes for Alex. Prosecutors believe at the time of the killings, Alex Murdaugh's world was crumbling around him. He was on the brink of being exposed as a thief. Here's a man who has grown up with generational power, generational wealth, privilege. But on June 7, 2021, it was about to be revealed that Alex had been stealing money from his law firm and his clients for years. But that's not all. It's also been revealed in this trial that in the months leading up to the murders, both Paul and Maggie had been confronting Alex about his drug use, his opioid addiction. In a transcript of a voicemail Paul Murdaugh left for Alex on May 6, 2021, Paul said, I am still in Edisto Beach because when you get here, we have to talk. Mom found several bags of pills in your computer bag. Cell phone records showed that same day, Maggie was Googling information on oxycodone pills and then deleted her searches. It's also been reported that in the weeks leading up to the murders, the family's credit cards were being declined. A voicemail from Alex to his banker, Russell Lafitte, on March 6, 2021, showed he was asking if he could extend his line of credit for another $600,000. Alex was in deep and was continuing to dig himself deeper. All of this meant prison. This meant disbarment, never working again as a lawyer. This meant public humiliation and being outed as an opioid addict. But most importantly, this meant accountability. Alex was about to have to face his wrongdoings and witness his own fall from grace. Prosecutors contend that Alex lured Maggie and Paul to the Moselle property that night, where he alone shot them with a shotgun and a rifle. The state believes that he killed his family to buy himself time, sympathy, to stop the boat wreck lawsuit, to stop the inquiries into his finances, to stop the questioning about his drug use. And for all intents and purposes, it worked for a while. 
After the murders, Alex's family and colleagues rallied behind him, bringing him food, caring for him. The boat wreck lawsuit was dropped. Those same employees that were accusing him of stealing were now acting as mama bears, making sure Alex was safe, looking out for him. They were scared for him. No one was going to ask a grieving father about any financial issues. They weren't going to harass him. They left him alone for a while. A huge moment in this trial was when Judge Clifton Newman, who I have really enjoyed, decided to allow the jury to hear about those financial crimes. He ruled that this could be used to show malice, the evil intent behind the killings. And I'm grateful for this ruling because firstly, through testimony from Alex's former co-workers at his former law firm, we've gotten a very bleak and realistic feel of what was happening in the weeks, days, hours leading up to Maggie and Paul's murders. It appears that Alex had been found out. Jeannie Sackinger, the law firm's CFO, took the stand and testified the very day of the murders. She confronted Alex about a missing $792,000 and said that she had reason to believe that he had stolen that money from the law firm. This had been a burning suspicion for months. And on June 7, 2021, it was coming to a head. Jeannie Sackinger testified that that day, she walked upstairs to Alex's office and found him leaning over a filing cabinet. She said he turned to her, gave her a dirty look, and asked, what do you need now? You see, Jeannie had been inquiring about missing funds over the past few months, but Alex had always successfully evaded the questions. When he was asked about the suspicious way he was collecting fees, Alex reassured Jeannie Sackinger that he was just structuring money differently and moving funds into Maggie Murdaugh's name because of the boat case. But what does that mean? I touched on the boat case earlier, but here's a brief little rundown. In February 2019, Paul and five friends took the Murdaugh's boat out for a night of fun. The evening was a date night for the six of them. They planned to spend the Saturday night at a house party and then an oyster roast. But as the night progressed, the evening went from fun to worrisome, as many on the boat were noticing that Paul, allegedly the driver, was grossly intoxicated and driving the boat erratically. Some of the other passengers asked Paul to drop them off at a nearby dock as they wanted to get off, but Paul refused. Around 2.20 a.m., the night ended in a horrible accident. The boat crashed into the Archer's Creek Bridge. This crash threw many into the water. One of those ejected was 19-year-old Mallory Beach. 911 is called and first responders begin the search for Mallory. Her body was found eight days later by some fishermen. She was discovered five miles from the crash site. After this, the Beach family demanded justice for their daughter. A month after the boat crash, the Beach family filed a wrongful death suit against the Murdaugh family. And on April 18, 2019, Paul Murdaugh was indicted and charged with three felony counts of boating under the influence including causing the death of Mallory Beach and seriously injuring two other passengers. Paul pled not guilty, was out on bond, and was awaiting trial. And a lawsuit hearing was scheduled for the week of the murders. I keep referencing the boat crash because in many ways, it's at the heart of what many see as Alex Murdaugh's unraveling. And we now know that Paul Murdaugh would never have his day in court. So everyone was aware, including Alex's co-workers, that he was knee-deep in this lawsuit at the time. 
So the conversation between Alex and his law firm CFO, Jeannie Seckinger, ended that day when in the middle of their conversation, he got a phone call and learned that his dad, Randolph Murdaugh, was terminal. He was dying. Jeannie testified that the conversation then went in a completely different direction. She felt compassionate for Alex and she left his office. So that conversation was shelved. The topic of misappropriating funds was held at bay, for now at least. But the perfect storm was brewing. Alex knew that he only had so much time left before he was going to be exposed. Everything was coming to a head on Monday, June 7, 2021. But when his wife and son were killed, the heat substantially cooled for a while. He was out of the spotlight for his wrongdoings. He was pitied. The community sympathized for the grieving dad and husband. And that boat wreck case was ended. He was essentially off the hook for at least a little while. And a few days later, on June 10th, Alex's father, Randolph Murdaugh, passed away as well. So let's dive deeper into the night of the murders. There's a million and one questions about June 7th, 2021. One being, why were Maggie and Paul at Moselle that night to begin with? It was well known that Maggie's primary residence at that time was the family's beach house in Edisto, a house that she considered home. Maggie was in the middle of redecorating, a project to make the place more homey, and also prepping for a 4th of July party there. And according to sources, Maggie didn't like staying at Moselle. She said it got dark at night and it was scary out there. Moselle was Alex's primary residence as his work, the law firm, was close by. So per Alex, the reason Maggie came to Moselle that night was because she was so worried about him. He said that Maggie knew his father was admitted to the hospital that day, he was terminal, and it looked bad. So Alex claimed the only reason Maggie returned to Moselle that day was out of her own will and sympathy for Alex. Well, when the Murdaugh's housekeeper, Blanca Simpson, took the stand, she painted a very different picture, a more realistic picture. Per Mrs. Simpson's testimony, she said that Alex specifically requested for Maggie and Paul to come to Moselle that night and Maggie was more on the fence about going or not. According to Ms. Simpson, Alex asked Maggie to come to Moselle to be with him and to go visit his mom, Miss Libby, at Almeida. And Alex requested that Paul come to Moselle to help clean up the property. Alex said they were hosting a hunting gathering that weekend, so he asked Paul to come help and get everything cleaned up. Ms. Simpson also testified that Alex had changed his clothes from what she saw him wearing the morning of the 7th. She testified that he was in khakis and a polo shirt that day. But when police arrived on the scene the night of the murders, Alex was in a white shirt and shorts. That dress shirt has never been found and Miss Simpson testified that after the murders, Alex sat her down and he was really worried. He began asking her about what he was wearing that day and she testified that she was unsure if he was trying to get her to lie for him. So we have testimony of Alex trying to cover his tracks with his clothing changes that night. And we also have firsthand testimony that Maggie was lured to Moselle that night. Alex had requested she be there so she could go with him to visit his mom in this very unsettling time. But this seems even shadier because as we know, Alex went alone to visit his mom that night. So this story doesn't add up. By far, one of the most incriminating pieces of evidence in this trial is the now infamous Snapchat kennel video. This video was filmed on Paul's phone the night of the murders, five or six minutes before prosecutors say that Paul and Maggie were murdered. 
This is huge. Because in prior interviews with investigators, Alex was always adamant that he never went down to the kennels before discovering the bodies at night. This has proven to be a lie with a now infamous kennel video. In the video Paul sent to a friend, Rogan Gibson, Paul films himself walking inside the kennel where he films a short little video of Rogan's dog, Cash. In this video, which, remind you, was filmed at 8.44 p.m., we hear three voices. One being Paul, as he filmed it. Then we hear Maggie Murdaugh in the background. And then we hear Alex Murdaugh. The family is discussing their dog, Bubba, who has a chicken in its mouth. So this Snapchat video places Alec Murdaugh at the scene of the crime mere minutes before the brutal murders of his wife and son. And this video has been played over and over again to any and every witness that has taken the stand that knew the family personally, knew their voices, could recognize the individuals in this video. And these witnesses vary from family members, friends, coworkers, and they have all confirmed that the three voices on the video are Paul, Maggie, and Alex. This is a huge blow for the defense because how do you explain the accused, Alex, being at the scene of the crime minutes before Maggie and Paul are shot to death? It destroys his alibi of him being blissfully unaware at the house and begs the question, why did he lie about never being there if he wasn't involved? Another big blow to the defense came from the testimony of Michelle Shelley Smith, Alex's mom's caregiver. Alex told investigators that the night of the murders, he was visiting his mom and that this was a very normal routine for him. But Mrs. Smith testified that it really wasn't. She didn't usually see him come over so late on her shift, and when he arrived, he was carrying a blue tarp and was fidgety, but then said that he was always sort of fidgety, so... Mrs. Smith also stated that Alex only stayed for about 15 to 20 minutes. She also stated that Alex told her that if anyone asked how long he was there that night, tell them that he was there for 30 to 40 minutes. And if that wasn't shady enough, he also reportedly offered to help pay for Mrs. Smith's upcoming wedding and also offered to help get her a better job. So it appears that Alex was attempting to buy her off, get her to lie for him, and in exchange, he would make it worth her while. When agents got a search warrant for Alex's mother's house four months after the killings, they found that blue tarp, but also a blue rain jacket. Law enforcement agent Megan Fletcher took the stand and testified to finding a large amount of gunshot residue inside the jacket and said it was consistent with either firing a gun while wearing it inside out or being wrapped around a recently fired weapon. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. Along with the tarp and raincoat, forensics detected Maggie Murdaugh's DNA on the steering wheel of Alex's Chevy Suburban. Along with gunshot primer residue particles on the clothing Alex was wearing the night of the murders. By far, some of the most emotional testimony in this trial came from Marion Proctor, Maggie's only sister. She, like Blanca Simpson, testified that Alex specifically asked Maggie to come to Moselle that night. Marion stated that she strongly encouraged her sister to go. Marion also testified that when talking with Alex shortly after the murders, she asked him, who could have done this? And Alex's response is chilling. He said he didn't know, but whoever it was probably thought about it for a long time. Why would he say something like that? 
What would make someone say something like that? Marion also said that Alex acted strangely after the murders. Most notably, she said that Alex's number one priority was to clear Paul's name in the boat case. Let's take a listen. In the days and weeks following Maggie and Paul's murder, did Alec ever say anything about the boat case? Uh, we would talk about the boat case, um, and he was very intent on clearing Paul's name. What did he say? He said that um, his number, number one goal was clearing Paul's name. And I thought that was so strange because my number one goal was to find out who killed my sister and Paul. But that wasn't Alex's concern, main concern? I know he, I know he, I know he must have wanted that too, but it just, I don't know how he could have thought about anything else. For Alex, there didn't seem to be an urgency to find the killer or killers. We've heard from numerous other witnesses that in the months following the murders, Alex didn't seem very preoccupied in finding who did this to his wife and son. Marianne also testified that Maggie had expressed concern to her about Alex's opioid addiction, and that concern was growing in the months leading up to her death. She also said that if there were pills inside the home, Paul, the little detective, as Maggie nicknamed him, was determined to find them. Marion also testified about an affair. She said that Maggie believed that Alex had an affair with another woman years back, and this reportedly continued to bother her up until recently. And according to sources, Maggie met with a divorce attorney prior to her death. All of this makes us question if the marriage was really a happy one, as Alex claimed. I'm also curious why Maggie had to be convinced or persuaded or lured to Moselle that night. Marion said that she really encouraged Maggie to go, but my question is, why did she need to be convinced? The state concluded with arguably the most illuminating testimony from SLED agent Peter Rudofsky. Peter Rudofsky compiled a detailed timeline of the night of the murders from data. Data from Paul's cell phone, Maggie's cell phone, Alex's cell phone, cellular towers, and OnStar data from Alex's car and data from Maggie's car. And holy smokes, did this blow everyone away. My jaw was on the floor during his testimony. I was really impressed with Peter Rudofsky. He came across as incredibly knowledgeable, extremely data-driven, and this timeline that he compiled is so chilling. It gives us a complete play-by-play -play of Paul and Maggie's final hours down to the very second. Where they were, what they were doing, exactly what kinds of texts they were sending, calls they were making. The data even shows how many steps they were taking. The timeline begins during the day of June 7th, but let's start at the Kennel Snapchat video taken at 8.44 p.m. Both Maggie and Paul were both on their phones actively during this time frame. Everything seemed to be very normal. Alex's phone, although, was completely inactive. At 8.49 p.m., both Paul and Maggie's phones lock forever. This timeline shows a 16-minute time frame in between Paul and Maggie's phones locking and that GPS data showing Alex leaving the home to visit his mom. 
in this 16-minute time frame, the prosecution believe Paul and Maggie were murdered. And they believe it started with Paul. Prosecution believes that he was caught off guard with no time to defend himself and was shot in the chest with a shotgun while standing in the feed room. Based on the pattern of blood droplets from the injury, investigators believe Paul then slowly began to try and make his way towards the door and towards the killer, favoring the side he had been shot as he was likely in immense pain, where the shooter was waiting outside the feed door. The second blast from the shotgun prevented Paul from ever making it to the doorway and killed him instantly as it struck his neck and shoulder, causing a fatal injury to his brain. The shooter, allegedly Alex Murdaugh, then turned on his wife. Maggie appeared to be facing the feeding room and the killer began firing from only four or five feet away. Evidence suggests that Maggie tried to flee, only to be shot a total of five times with a 300 blackout ammo AR style rifle. In her final moments, she faced her killer and was backing away, knocking into the family ATV. She was struck twice, first in the upper thigh, second through her stomach, but these were not fatal. It's believed she then fell to her knees. The next shot through the left side of her abdomen up through her breast, her jaw, and into her brain was fatal. The second shot, also to her head, would also have been fatal, but she was already dead. When I heard the specific details of the murders, my first thought was, Wow, that is really personal. The killer was so close, mere feet from the victims. To me, it seemed the killer didn't want Paul to see him. First shot, taking him by surprise, and the second, the killer was hiding outside the door. Maggie's injuries tell a completely different story, and it's likely she was looking straight at her killer as it happened. Like I said, personal and brutal. If the evidence suggested that they were killed from a distance, I could see this being more of a vigilante-type crime. But that is not how this went down. In this 16-minute time frame, prosecutors believe that Alex cleaned off, grabbed the weapons, changed, grabbing his bloody clothes, and took Maggie Murdaugh's phone as he left the house. Rudofsky continues with his timeline, noting that Alex's phone is like a ghost during the entire time frame of the killings, inactive at the house. But all of a sudden, Alex's phone comes back to life, and there is a flurry of activity. His phone recorded him taking more than 70 steps a minute for about four minutes. This was well over the pace he had walked any other time that evening. Where he was walking is unknown. But remember, per his alibi, at this time, he was supposedly awaking from a nap and hopping in the car to drive to his mom's. Data shows his SUV leaving Moselle at 9.06 p.m., the timeline also marked that the backlight on Maggie Murdaugh's cell phone turned off at about the same time that Alex's SUV drove by the spot on the two-lane highway where his wife's phone was found the very next day. Also noting that it appears Alex's SUV speeds up after passing that spot Maggie's phone was disposed of. On Alex's drive to Almeida, he drove a maximum speed of 74.4 miles per hour and parked closer to the wood line, not in the driveway. Why he would go out into the wood line, prosecutors believe he disposed of the murder weapons, clothing, and any other evidence. Data shows him spending 20 minutes at his mom's home, which again is consistent with Mrs. Smith's, the caretaker's testimony. Alex hops back in his SUV and begins his return to Moselle, driving a maximum of 80 miles per hour on a pothole-ridden Moselle road. His speed was faster than it had been for any other trip he took that day. 
The GPS shows Alex arriving back to Moselle where he supposedly found an empty house. He then drives down to the kennels at 10.05 p.m. and 20 seconds later, he dials 911. This time frame of 20 seconds is pretty shocking because remember, Alex told 911 dispatch that when he discovered Maggie and Paul, he said he checked both of them, first attempting to flip Paul over when Paul's phone popped out of his pants. Alex said he messed with his phone for a second, then placed it back down, then ran over to check Maggie, tried to find a pulse on her, and their bodies were 30 feet apart. And so he did all of this in 20 seconds? Hmm. This rings much more like the truth as when first responders arrived, Alex was clean. He had no blood on his hands or anywhere else for that matter, which is a strange sight for someone who said they just checked their slain loved ones for pulses. Special Agent Rudofsky also testified to some strange activity on Alex's phone after discovering the bodies and calling 911. Get this, per his phone data, Alex Googled the name of a restaurant, Whaley's, in Edisto Beach and looked at a group text message including a photo of a woman in a bikini. Special Agent Rudofsky testified that he wouldn't be on his phone googling restaurants after making this kind of horrific discovery. And I think almost everyone agrees. This looks awful. The state rested after Peter Rudofsky's testimony as it really hit home for many. His timeline detailed a very grim, very tragic evening. And now another quick word from today's sponsors. You're back with Avery After Dark. So the state has rested, and in my opinion, they did a really great job at establishing a timeline, breaking down exactly when they believe Paul and Maggie were murdered. They also did a really great job at showing Alex's movements, his alibi, and the statements he made were all very suspicious. And all of this was backed up by digital forensic data. The defense has called up numerous witnesses, and on their side, investigators have never recovered or found the murder weapons. They don't have DNA or forensics or fingerprints that directly tie Alex to the crime scene. This is a largely circumstantial case, and the defense has also pointed out that there were problems in this investigation, contamination of the crime scene. On February 21st, Buster Murdoch took the stand. Buster, 26, is Alex's only remaining living son. He testified that his father was destroyed after the murders. He said he had no idea that his dad was stealing from clients and that he had little knowledge about his dad's drug addiction. Buster stated he knew he had struggled with it in the past and went to a detox center in 2018, but he thought his dad had kicked the addiction. Buster also testified that it was normal for the family to sometimes park in the grass near the wood line at Almeida. This was so they could enter through a side entrance. A photo was shown of that side entrance and the grass surrounding it. And to me, it didn't appear to have any tread marks. It didn't look to be used as a parking area, but Buster claims they did park there sometimes. This is in defense of the state's theory that Alex only pulled over to the wood line to dispose of evidence from the murders. I would argue that both things could be true. The defense has also called up forensic analysts who discussed the bullet trajectories and argued that it was more likely the shooter was closer to 5'4", which is about a foot shorter than the very tall Alex Murdaugh. We have heard so much about Alex in this trial, and we've all been wondering if we would hear from him directly. Will he testify? And finally, on February 23rd, Alex Murdaugh took the stand. 
He starts off by testifying that he did not shoot Paul or Maggie. And also for the first time we've ever heard, he begins referring to Paul as Papa. We've never heard him use this affectionate little nickname before. Alex then admits, yes, he was down at the kennels, and yes, that was him on the now infamous Snapchat video. When asked, why did you lie about not being down at the kennels, Alex says that he lied to investigators because he had grown paranoid from his drug use and he also had a distrust of sled agents. He said once he started lying, he had to keep lying. Alex also admits to stealing funds from his clients and the law firm. He said he didn't really know why he did what he did, but blamed his painkiller addiction, specifically oxycodone and oxycotton. He says this addiction began with a knee injury from playing football and escalated over the years. Alex testified that on June 7th, when he and Paul got back from riding around that evening, Alex went back to the house and showered and changed before dinner because he was so sweaty from working out with Paul. And also, the oxycodone makes you sweat more. He claims that's when he changed into the clothes that he was wearing when first responders arrived. Alex goes on to claim that the three ate dinner, then Maggie and Paul went to the kennels. Maggie asked him to come, but Alex said no because he was tired, didn't feel like going, had just showered, and didn't want to deal with the dog's chaos. So supposedly Maggie and Paul leave, and then Alex says he changed his mind. So he hopped in the golf cart and drove down to the kennels. Alex says they all spent some time with the dogs for a bit, then he just leaves. He said he got out of there. Alex says he got back into the golf cart, drives back to the house, lays down on the couch for a while, says he may or may not have dozed off, then he decides to head out and visit his mom. Alex is asked, well, what about Maggie? Wasn't she supposed to go visit your mom too? And Alex says, no, Maggie didn't really like to visit his mom, so she really wasn't going to go that night. This strongly contradicts what we've heard from numerous other witnesses, stating that was the reason Alex asked Maggie to come to Moselle to begin with. Alex continues on, says he visited his mom for a bit, then got back to the house, finds it empty, then drives down to the kennels, and this is where he discovered the bodies. Alex also adds that he was checking them for pulses as he was calling 911. To summarize his testimony, Alex seemingly went down the timeline justifying and shifting his alibi as needed to fit Special Agent Rudofsky's timeline of data. In turn, the prosecution reinforced Alex Murdaugh's position in the community, the power he had, the privilege he used to his advantage, the connections and friendships to law enforcement. He knows the system backwards and forwards. He's been an attorney for decades and knows how to work a case in his favor. The state also highlighted Alex's long history of dishonesty, the stealing, misleading his clients, lying to anyone and everyone in order to get away with what he wanted. There is no honor amongst thieves. My personal assessment, it seems that any time Alex was confronted about his stealing, his ill-gotten gains, whenever he was about to be forced to take any kind of accountability for his actions, it was directly followed by a big, violent event, shootings. In the past, the Murdoch family was able to get themselves out of anything. They were friends with judges, politicians, heck, they knew the people sitting on the jury in the case they were trying. People feared them, and probably still do. 
And in the past, Alex was able to buy himself out of his wrongdoings. But it looks like on June 7th, 2021, it all came to a head. Alex Murdaugh was out of options. He couldn't buy himself out of it this time. Desperate times, desperate measures. How do you think the jury will land with a verdict? How do you think this twisted Southern murder mystery will end? Only time will tell. Until next episode, this is Avery After Dark.